dare great things for Christ. Christ calls us to dare great things. In the marketplace, as well as in the mission field, there has never been a time like the present for the spirit of the Catholic entrepreneur. Now is the time for men and women of great courage and great vision to engage our church and our culture. Now is the time to dare great things. And here is your host as we dare great things, Father Nathan Cromley, the president and founder of the St. John Institute. So much of what makes a leader successful comes from their ability to take people where they need to go. If we don't have vision, then we really are the blind leading the blind. But oddly enough, when it comes to shaping our culture, it seems like many people don't know what we should be aiming at. The world will indicate many different values as its arbiter of success. But what does Jesus ask for from us? What does our Lord ask for from a follower of his in the culture in which we live? How do we aim at the right things? Welcome back, everybody, to the St. John Leadership Network, where we raise up saints to lead. Our goal is to take all the teachings of Jesus and all the power that he left in in the hands of his church, right, the sanctifying power of his grace, and to to make them bear fruit in your life and your practical life as a leader, be it as the father of a family or as the division head of of a large industrial company, be it as an accountant, be it as a nurse, whatever you are, And wherever you are, as a babysitter, for example, I mean, as an aunt, as a sister, as a friend, wherever we are, we are supposed to be bringing the influence of Jesus Christ with us, okay? And that's the same for us as members of our culture. We do a lot of different seminars. You've listened to a lot of our classes that we've done on business leadership, family leadership. I wanted to focus in on cultural leadership, meaning what, what our role is as citizens of the culture, because it's, it's all the rage today. People seem to want to win a cultural war by emitting their opinions in different fashions and with greater or lesser intensity and fury. And, and I, I just, it was, is that really what's going to change the culture? It's having a microphone and then saying what I think in a way that, that brings people to think like I think and I change the culture. Well, it will to a degree, but I wonder in what way we're going to change it. Like, what are we changing it to? This is the, the really key question, right? Whenever you're dealing with anybody who's putting an opinion out there, you need to test the spirit, just like the Bible tells us. And you need to look for where they're taking you. Are, are they bringing you closer to hope? Are they bringing you closer to holiness? Are they bringing you closer to the crucified king who chose to rule the world from the wood of the cross, right? Or in fact, are they bringing you into despair, into anger, into pessimism, into a world vision of constant fear? And it could be, right? I mean, like, and there are things that are fearful out there. I'm not saying it's more just to have an understanding deep down that we have to be intelligent because Jesus told us that there will be wolves in sheep's clothing, right? They will look like sheep. But in fact, there are going to be ravenous wolves that will take the hope, the positivity, the joy that he has given us as his followers, and they'll gnash it in their teeth or they'll bring it to naught. It's not because people say that they're advancing a cause, in other words, that they actually are. And, and to test that is something we all owe ourselves and everybody around us. And so Jesus gave us some standards by which to test the leadership. Are they aiming at the right things, right? When he came into the world, for example, he came as a citizen of a culture. 
right? So his culture was one that was dominated by an empire that was greater than his. He lived in an occupied land. Okay, the, the Greeks had dominated his land before the Romans who took over for the Greeks and then they occupied it. And it was, it was part of an empire, but he was not part of the citizenry of that empire. Nevertheless, he would be impacted by its culture, of course. And he certainly was. He was put to death at the hands of the Romans who were occupying his land. Right? How did Jesus at that moment, having so little power and so uh, in the worldly sense of the term, right, so little entitlement, so little to leverage, uh, do so much? How did he, what did he aim at when he was trying to transform the culture of his day? And it's a really important thing to look at and try to follow his methodology because we're his followers. And just like him, many of us can feel like, wow, we're being occupied by ideas and ways of life that are increasingly, you know, uh, coming up around us that are different from the ways that we believe are right. And our day is not really that much different from the time of Jesus. I mean, look at, for example, the religious authorities in Jesus's world. They were subjugated to the Romans. I mean, to the, to the point of even saying that what is better for one man to die that the nation might not perish and that we have no king but Caesar. I mean, this is not, you know, it certainly isn't their, their glory day. I'm not saying this is something that they were proud of, but at the same time, this is certainly also not the, you know, Judaism at its height to have, we have no king but Caesar. And, and then at the same time, you've got the political rulers of Israel at their, at their day, which are so full of corruption. I mean, look at what, how Herod lived. Herod, who tried to kill the Messiah when he came, you know, Herod, who was entertained by the dancing of his own stepdaughter. I mean, this is really a sad scenario when it comes to political leadership in his day. And many people feel it's the same in, in our day. There are people today that are upset about different things that happen in the church and church leadership. There are people who are disappointed in the, uh, the what seems to be a failure in their eyes of politics uh, as it's played out in Washington. There's, and you have, in the same way, you're going to have dynamics of people who seek to rebel even against the status quo. And Jesus had that in his day. There were people who led rebellions, armed violent rebellions against the state. And that means that there were all kinds of people that would have discussed that with them, that would have been simply pathetic to those people or else they wouldn't have even tried to make that rebellion and then you had people that were in utter despair you had people who had sold out becoming tax collectors for example and selling out their own people so that they could live by the extorted values of the taxes that they gained i mean you, you had all these different traders and, and and people who were despairing in many different forms what did Jesus do when he walked in the midst of that culture? That's what I want to look at with you, because if you go to your own personal life, you're going to see that the, the same dynamics are at play in how you're approaching your family. If you've got a daughter, for example, who's chosen to live outside of the life of Christ, what are you going to do? Are, are you going to reject her or are you going to take her in? Are you going to go to, to a marriage that is illicit? Or are you going to stay back in the family? I mean, how do you balance that with the other siblings when that same daughter then goes and tells the other siblings that you've rejected them? If you, you know, or that on the contrary, when all of them say together that they don't have faith and you shouldn't have faith too. I mean, do you follow your children into atheism out of love? I mean, how far does love push you? That's not easy. And then how do you bring them around? How, do you, how would you even try to make it the influence of Christ in that situation if your own spouse, for example, doesn't support you in the faith? I mean, this is a really difficult scenario. And you're going to have the same things playing out. 
You're going to have a value of those who choose a, a scorched earth policy, right, of absolute rebellion and warfare against what they know is wrong. And you'll have other people who choose to abdicate any sense of responsibility of truth in the face of what they claim is love, but which is really a seeking of acceptance and approval by the very ones that they're supposed to be leading and not following. But you know, just as our Lord found the way to do it in his time and left us an example for us to do it in our way today, he will also show you the path and give you the path of what to aim at, what to prioritize, how to walk in the various decisions you've got to make as you lead your family culture or your workplace culture in the world of business today. And I want to focus in on that with you. Would you like to hear more from Father Nathan? Join the St. John Leadership Network and receive a two-minute glance at the gospel every Sunday morning right to your phone. To learn more, go to www.stjohnleadershipnetwork.org member and join for free today. So the question is, how do we impact our culture for Christ? Okay, that's what we're here for. We're here to bring the light of Jesus Christ, the love of Christ into our culture, right? And so any culture, you got to remember, is generated by the heart of the people who are in it. You know, from a social culture, we say that the cell of the culture is the family. And I say, yes, the cell of the culture is the family, but every cell has a nucleus. And the nucleus of the family is the love between the husband and the wife. Right? So like their love and their choice of dedication and how they choose to love that out will radiate and influence the entire culture of the family, which will then radiate and influence the entire culture of the society that touches it. Okay, so as the family goes, so society goes. But that's because the family goes as the heart goes. When I mean the word heart, I'm not speaking here about something that's just emotional or sappy. I'm talking about the central reality that defines what you're living for, right? So I'm saying when I can grab someone by the heart, I can grab them by the center. That's actually where the word comes from. Our notion of the word for heart is from the Latin word core, C-O-R. And it's not accidental that core, C-O-R, both means the core of something and the heart. Okay, because it means exactly that. The center of the human action, of a human being and their end of their action, the source, the wellspring, right, out of which all of our motivations, our decisions, our actions, and therefore our influence flows. And Jesus goes there. It's very interesting that, yes, he will at times bring up this or that scenario. He will reference this or that happening in the news, for example. He will stand up to the powers that are in, in, in this or that format. But he always does so by focusing everyone's attention at the real foundational questions. And the real foundational questions are not whether or not they should pay the temple tax or whether or not they should wash the outside of, of buckets and spoons and things like that. It, it, the real central question is whether or not they have the love of God in them. And you see, like, he aims at that. And he tries to bring the love of God to people kind of independent of their social status. If you're a sinful woman lost in adultery, caught in the act of adultery, I mean, if it's even more explicit than that, you can have hope because your sins can be forgiven by Christ. If you're a good thief hanging on the cross and you're about to die within hours, the kingdom of God will be given to you that very day. I mean, you know, he makes promises independent of the heart that touch the heart independently of the situation that they're in. 
It's almost like he goes beyond. He speaks to the rich and he brings them hope. He, he invites Zacchaeus to come down and dine with him that day. He calls Matthew the tax collector in as he's collecting taxes at his table of iniquity to come and follow him. It's, it's amazing, right? It's almost like he sees below the level of the outer positioning of a person and he summons their heart. And I think we see something very similar in the life of Pope John Paul II and the approach that he took to evangelization. Well, because with John Paul II, it was amazing how people would listen to him regardless of their faith and, and end up being influenced by what he was saying, even giving their life over to God or changing their pathway from bad or evil to good. Just because he had a way of speaking that focused in on the heart that was inspirational. I remember, for example, when he started World Youth Day and, and he, he, the bishops of the world never thought it was, was possible. He had this idea to meet with young adults and teenagers for several days with them, focusing in on them as their primary audience. And the bishop said, this, this won't work. The kids don't want to go to church or, or whatever. And so he went to France and he asked the bishops in France whether or not they would do a World Youth Day with him. And the bishops literally said, no. They said, Holy Father, it's not going to work. This is not the right time. So, of course, you have to be the pope to do this. <laughs> he said, I'll go to Spain. So he called up the bishops in Spain. And the Spanish bishop said, all right, we'll give this a shot. It was 1989. We're going to go ahead and just say young people can come and, and we'll give it a shot. They expected 70,000 teenagers and young adults to show up. That's not bad, I suppose. But in fact, 500,000 came. 500,000. Think about that. That's like eight times the number that they thought would come. They kids came on boats. They came on bikes. They hiked in from everywhere. They didn't care. They slept in the fields. They slept wherever they could. And they celebrated the Catholic faith with a Pope for like three full days. It was amazing. A journalist had never seen anything like this because, of course, Europe, which had thought the church was dying, suddenly found the church flush with young people. And a journalist came to the Holy Father and said, Holy Father, why are you here? What did you come to see? And John Paul II looked at him and said, I came to greet the martyrs of the third millennium. That's not a dramatic thing. You know what I mean? The bishops are looking at these people saying, these guys aren't even going to church. There's no hope for them. Let's not even try. And John Paul II looks at them and says, these are the martyrs of the third millennium. These are the Christians that are going to lead the church into this, the great evangelization of the third millennium. This was his vision. And he had that vision regardless of the outer circumstances. And this is the very first and important thing for us. If we allow ourselves to determine our actions by the out, outward appearance of the situation, we're not going to effectively lead. You know, it'd be that in our work, Right? If you've got someone you're trying to manage and they just seem to be incorrigible and they seem to be difficult and they seem to be, you know, insubordinate, well, you're just going to fire them. It's a lot easier. Well, it's, but you might fire them and that might be a good thing to do. But at the same time, if you fire a person, you're no longer leading them and, and you're not always able to fire them. So then what do you do? You've got to lead them. Well, how do you lead? You look beyond the external especially when someone's being defiant towards you or trying to manipulate you in one way or the other towards a preset conclusion, it's a, you need to surprise them by looking beyond how they're telling you to treat them and leading the conversation in the hope that comes from Jesus. Because every human being, 
even the ones that are the most difficult, have, have a heart that can be summoned beyond what they're doing by something greater. I remember a story where this happened to me, right? I was going into a church in France to go to mass and there was a, a couple, a man and a woman, young man and woman sitting on a, a, a little bench outside the church door and they were, you know, not acting or behaving in true Christian morality. Okay, let's just put it that way. It was, it was an indecorous scene of, of affection, public display of affection on full display. And so, I, you know, I walked past them kind of shielding my eyes as I went into the church and then I said, well, this is the craziest thing. They're sitting right outside of the church well i ought to bring them in so i literally went over and tapped the guy on the shoulder said excuse me and i said you know hey you know we're having mass inside would you like to join us for mass i didn't start by correcting him i didn't start by condemning his behavior i started by inviting him where i was going and he's immediately said, oh no 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 i don't believe in god i don't believe in god and i said well the door is open and if you ever want to come inside come inside we'd love to have you and then i walked past simple as that I'll be darned 10 minutes later, what happens? I can still see the young man walking in. He had his hat clutched in his hands and his eyes were wide open. He was looking all around him up at the ceiling like he'd never been in a church before. And he may not have been. Well, he sat next to me at mass. I told him what was going on. I, I walked him through the mass. And then after mass, I literally led him to the cross where I led him in a prayer to accept Jesus Christ into his heart as his savior. And he did. I mean, it was amazing. Now, you see, if you would have stayed on the outside, I would have been, you know, uh, re repulsed by his activity and I wouldn't have been able to touch and inspire something in him that that genuine love of a kind invitation seemed to touch. Jesus did the same. To aim for our culture today in a big sense, to try to impact it for Christ, to be, to win the cultural war for Christ, we got to aim at the heart. You know, we have to get around the, uh, a negative approach of hostility, uh, even though there might be valuable and value in that at times or whatever, but we gotta get beyond that because nobody's going to want to join an army that's intent on anger. People wanna join an army that's full of inspiration and spirit and light and life. And that's supposed to be the way that the army of God's church wages her glorious combat. We're supposed to be people of the resurrection and of dawn who are able to see as if we saw the invisible, the invisible of God, but also the invisible inside of people and of situations. Why are we, why do we stay at a pure condemnation? I agree. We need to condemn things. We need to call them the way they are. Absolutely. But we need to do it in a way that attracts people to follow us. Just punishing a child because they do something wrong is, is not enough. You have to do the, a punishment at times or a correction because of love and the love needs to be present even there. Love, hope, optimism. And in the same way, when we therefore aim our messaging and aim our efforts at winning over the cultural battles that are around us, let's make sure to infuse our language with that same optimism and that same hope. People will be attracted by what is beautiful and holy and uplifting. And when I read the life of Christ, I see plenty of times where he offered correction, plenty of times where he expressed anger, and yet always I see a dedication to hope. And it needs to be the same for you and me. Would you like to start your Thursday mornings with a scriptural leadership lesson? Join the St. John Leadership Network, where Father Nathan hosts a 30-minute call at 6.30 a.m. in all four U.S. time zones. To learn more, go to www 
www.stjohnleadershipnetwork.org slash member and join for free today. You know, when I look at the way that our Lord chose to evangelize in his day, I'm, I'm struck by a fact. He chose to work with individuals who were not socially powerful, and he worked with them intensely, pouring himself into them in a relationship that went far beyond instruction. Okay, so when they were following him, they were following him as disciples follow a teacher. Okay? But his teaching was much more than teaching. He actually transformed bread into his body, wine into his blood, and had them eat and drink his body and his blood. I mean, because this is kind of intense, okay? He goes way beyond saying that truth, in other words, is outside of a relationship of love with God. And instead, he takes all of the truth that he, he does, and all the truth that he has, And he puts it into a relationship that's full of life. And I think about this because I know your teachers out there, uh, you're, you're trying to manage people correctly. You need to lead people as a teacher, giving them truth. And yet the most impactful leaders though, aren't those who simply treat truth like facts. Truth is not just a series of facts. Truth is facts that lead to love. This is a whole different thing. I know it's hard for people to understand because we live in a world that's dominated by a scientific view of truth, which has really stripped the equation and, to, and reduced things into things that are material, measurable, judgeable. And these are, that's fine. I mean, I'm all for modern science, but I'm also for a vision of the world that's bigger than what a positivistic, materialistic, reductionist view of the world could ever possibly give because that's where I see Jesus walking. Jesus insists on making a relationship with the people that is deep. And and it's so deep that then those people engage their lives at the service of the truth that they know because the truth has become something much more than something that they know. It's become something that they love. And when someone loves truth, you know what happens? They start to express it in creative ways new innovations, things we've never thought of before. And everyone speaks truth uniquely when they speak truth in love. So you you have the rise of an entire culture that's generated because Jesus refuses to separate his truth from love. It's an amazing thing when you add love to the equation, what it does. It, It takes a simple fact and it suddenly makes it something that people can engage in that they want to follow. And when they do that, well, it's as unique as they are. Everybody follows truth in a different way. Everybody finds a different way to live, to sing, to speak, to, to respond to a fact. And, and all of those ways, that's generative of a culture. Jesus will send his apostles out to every corner of the world to do what? Well, he tells us to baptize everybody and to teach them to be his disciples. Well, how do, they, how do you teach someone to be a disciple of Christ? Well, of course, you have your catechism. You've got your list of facts that you have to know, but it's much more than that. It's a life-giving knowledge, you see, a knowledge that's linked to a living person named Jesus and that flows through a living person named the apostle of Christ in his church. He wants, in other words, for us to know the truth in a way that is loving and full of love. 
so that, why? It claims every part of our life. All right, so if you put that in your own leadership, make that practical for yourself, just ask yourself if, in, if love isn't the bridge truth walks across in your own relationships. I mean, if you're trying to work with your kids or you're trying to manage someone at work or you have a boss who's really difficult and, you're, and it won't give you the time of day, the pattern is always the same. Start with a real love. Start by putting yourself more really into the relationship being more attentive to who they are, showing more kindness as a way of opening that door. But you know, it's even more powerful because for many of you, you're already doing fine in your management. You're already doing fine running your companies, but you want to leave a mark that really makes a difference. I'm thinking of the many business people that I know that really would, would like to sell their company or would like to stop uh, doing their level of work but then they're left with an emptiness. They're saying, what was this all for anyway? I have now have all this knowledge, all this wisdom. I know how to make this happen, but I don't have anyone to give it to, right? It's almost like we, with a deep aching of the heart to leave behind a spiritual legacy. I mean, what is my life really gonna count for when it's over? None of us wanna do things that are in vain and they're just gonna disappear when we're dead. Yeah, but how do we find, how do we make our lives impact really lasting? How do we extend it in time and in space? And this is, of course, Jesus, nobody's done it better than Jesus, right? Not only is he, has his impact not stopped in the course of history, but he's still actively alive through the influence of his disciples. I mean, people meet an apostle and they feel Jesus. How, well, he gives us the solution here. His focus is on the right thing. When he's working with people, he's not trying to simply get them to do what he says. He's teaching them to do as he did, all right? And to do it differently, do it in their own way, to express it analogically in their, in their own love. But, but you see, Jesus isn't looking just for disciples who will execute for him, are we? I mean, it's one thing to get people to execute for you, that's an important step. But to leave a real spiritual legacy we need to inspire them from the inside. And that requires a time and an investment in a relationship that goes deeper to share your own motivations for things. I'm thinking of the power that you have as parents to do this with your children and how important it could be to allow your, your children to touch why you do things, why you're excited about things. Not just that you are, but to know you from the inside. Have you shared your heart with your family like Jesus has shared his heart with you. In the end, leadership is the thing of the heart. And when we aim at the heart, we end up with impact. And that's the same for people as it is for the culture in general. Dare great things for Christ. Share your feedback with Father Nathan. Send us an email at communications at stjohninstitute.org. That's communications at stjohninstitute.org and visit www.stjohninstitute.org and sign up for our newsletter to receive updates from Father Nathan.